Hi, it's That Stack of Books. I'm Nancy Pearl along with... I'm Steve Scher. This is a podcast where we talk about the books we're reading and the ones to discover that'll go next on our stack. We're at the Bryant Corner Cafe again with a whole bunch of people ready to talk. About, about books that are so depressing we only read them in the summer. Well, I, I felt we had to balance since last time we talked about books that make us happy. And I'm really looking forward to the books that people have brought to tell us about because the reason, one of the reasons I love that we do this podcast, Steve, is that we can have any topic and people have such interesting ways into it via the books they read. And I will never forget the Valentine's Day program that we did about uh, love. And if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen. Indeed, because where we ended up was not at all where I think any of us thought we were <laughs> no. starting, where we were talking about love and some other right. def- definition yes. to where it ended. But that's what makes it fun, and that's what books do for us. I mean, we, we, we bring to books who we are, and we take from books perhaps what we need. Well, that would be a fine tagline for a podcast. <laughs> that stack of books. Yeah. Okay, let's right. do it. Take from where they are and get from them what we need. Very nice. So what'd you bring? Well, I actually brought two books. One is an older title and one is brand new. But, but um, I'm a huge fan of John le Carre. And I have read all of his books several times. I read, in fact, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy at least once a year because it's such a good book, even though, believe me, by this time I know who the spy is. Um, <laughs> But and and John le Carre in general, I think you would one would categorize him as he does not have the rosiest outlook on life, and so none of his books are gonna be uh, knee slappers or rib ticklers or whatever. But I think his saddest book and the only one of his books that I have not read again since that first time that that first experience of reading it is his book The Honorable Schoolboy which takes um, a relatively minor character from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and brings him into his own Jerry Weatherby brings him into his own and sets the book um, in Hong Kong uh, where there were a lot of spies roaming around um, and probably still are. Uh, for some reason, I think the fact that Jerry Weatherby in this book is a young man and is trying to do good, I, it, the book just broke my heart. And I, I, I still have my paperback copy that I bought all those years ago, $2.75. I, I, I bought it used. Um, <laughs> but and it's on my bookshelf, but I can't imagine that I'm ever going to pick it up again. When you read, do you read new, new Le Carre novels? I do read new Le Carre novels, not with as much um, enjoyment as his earlier, because I'm kind of addicted to that Cold War spy period, you know, that, that, that period. That's, remember, that's what I like. Remember, that was the fear Yes. That Lakari wouldn't have anything left to write. Yes, and, and the and the big question was where is he gonna go? And of course John Lakari 
where is he going to go literarily? John le Carre um, has this nose for what's going to be next, what you know, next big hot spot or next big topic. So, um, you know, after the Cold War, where did he set his next book? Chechnya. That before anybody was writing about Chechnya. Um, and then what did he turn to? Big Pharma. And then did even more, you know, in that whole period, sort of looked back at, at um, in, in a perfect spy, at his relationship with his father and exploring that. He's an amazing writer. You think he's going to stand up in the decades to come? I mean, we, we, you know, that's sort of a silly question, but I do wonder, because he seemed like he was so wedded to one era. I think that he's, that he's gone beyond that, though. I, I think that he's acknowledged as, I, I don't think, I, I mean, I personally think his best books are the George Smiley books, um, especially that, that trio of books. But... And I think he's entirely at home in that. But I think his writing, I mean, he's such a good, if you don't mind slow books, which I don't, he's such a good storyteller that I think he'll be around. Did anybody have a hard time finding a book for this topic? No, everybody had an easy time. Wow. All right, Rita, you're next to me again. So what, what's the... So you had no trouble finding a... No trouble. Whenever you uh, guys announce uh, the theme, I say, well, I know the book that I want to talk about. Um, it's the most depressing book I ever read, but it's also one of the best ones that I read. The name in English is The Book of Lamentations. And of course, <laughs> it has been borrowed from the Jewish uh, collection of poems about the, the, the lamentation for the destructions of Jerusalem. But this novel is a modern novel from the 20th century, and the author is uh, one of the best poets and writers from Mexico. Her name is Rosario Castellanos. And the original name of the book is Oficio de Tinieblas, which means something like task in the dark or in the shades or something like that. Um, she was, uh, she grew up in, in the state of Chiapas in the south of Mexico, which is a very, very sad part of the world, I would say. Um, okay, there was one part in this book that I could not make myself keep reading. It was, I mean, it's the first time that, that ever that happens to me that I had to just close the book. I said, I cannot keep reading. It was that scene when these Mayan people are going to sacrifice this kid, nail on the cross, because they, yeah, <laughs> she's going, yes, uh, the crucifixion, because uh, somebody have um, claimed that this kid was really the son of God, and if they sacrifice him, and if the Indians would drink the blood, they will be immune to the attack of the landowners. Because the whole thing is in Chiapas, you know, the, the whole story of the oppression from the part of the landowners, which are Spaniard. Is this, yeah. is this, is this set in the modern times? Oh, yes. But what happened, and what's more depressing about that, is that it really happened in the 1800s. One of the first revolts 
from uh, on the part of the Mayan indigenous people against the Spaniards. At that time, they were pure Spaniards. And that, that was the first of a series of revolts. The last one, you might remember the Zapatistas movement in, I think it was 2000, you know, with Comandante Marcos. Uh, that was the last one. But what she did was to take this real event and transfer into modern times, so it's uh, in the 20th century. I'm Elwin Workala. This is a book about miscreants and tyrants and torturers, and they have this light tone in which they talk about these terrible atrocities, like the king who had his wife, whom he, he had a fight with his wife and had her buried up to the neck in, in the earth and just left her there. Dorothy M. Johnson and R.T. Turner. This is a professor of something or other. Um, yeah, they're, they're professors, scholars. Uh, I'm Bob Beekman, and I can actually shed some light on Dorothy Johnson. Dorothy Johnson was the woman who wrote The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. Wow. wow. Also, The Hanging Tree and uh, A Man Called Crow, or A Man Called Horse. Yeah. Uh, she was a tough old bird. Her tombstone in Missoula, Montana, on it says, paid. <laughs> <laughs> paid, P-A-I-D. Wow. Uh, what, what's your depressing book? It's a book called uh, Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government. Uh, it's by Larry Bartels and Christopher Achen. I've read a previous book by Bartels called Unequal Democracy, but this popped out because I knew... That one reviewer called the book brutally depressing, which made the author so pleased they included it as a promotional blurb. My name's Nola, and it was a, a few years ago, and these were, uh, this is what I read. I decided to do this all in the summer, and it was a series, it was Thomas Hardy's books, oh all summer long. <laughs> I was really glad when September came. <laughs> but they were wonderful, and what was, to me, the most wonderful part about it was as I'd read tests and Far From the Matting Crowd in high school. <clears throat> and I hadn't read him at all since, but to read them in order and, and to watch the evolution of his writing and topics. And they, it, they, they were wonderful. They really were. He was a wonderful poet as well. I think his topics are timeless. All the things he talks about are timeless. The str struggles with your interpersonal struggles and conflicts with other people, the society. Well, I, and they reminded me of a quote that said, being Irish is to know that sooner or later the world will break your heart. And so when I read those, I was kind of thinking the same thing. <laughs> I'm Susan. Please look after mom. And I thought it would be a sweet family, maybe like still Alice or something like that. And it's not. Mom gets lost, they never find her, but they all regret how they treated her. Then I was remind, reminded by your comments of King Leopold's ghost. Mm -hmm. And I see lot. Oh, it's just the most horrific thing, and I could not read parts of it. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted a colony, and they gave him Belgium, the Belgium Congo, and he cut off the hands and feet they had to to, to send to him. Pay their to proof of paying their tax, so to speak. So it was very disturbing. I don't think you should even read it in the summer. 
Adam Hochschild. But I think it should be read. I think it's very, very disturbing. That was the book that I was going to mention was the King Leopold's Ghost, um, because I do like reading his, historical books, even if they have covered dark periods, but that one was... Uh, and the whole thing about the cutting off the hands and feet was the soldiers were given, had to account for every bullet they used, and they would basically, to prove that they um, had used their bullets for a good purpose, would, you know, sent, they would take, cut off the hands, they would smoke them so they could um, could last and then send them back. And then they realized, we don't actually have to use the bullets. We don't even really have to kill the person. We just need to send the hands. And that was... You know, when you hear today of uh, things happening in the Congo and Rwanda, all those macheting and cutting off of hands leads, um, leads back to that time. It's sort of a legacy of, that has spread to Liberia and a lot of the conflicts happening all over Central and West Africa. Uh, you, you don't always know the history of where something happened. Like Similar to the whole idea of scalping, um, it was for a lot of when both the British and the French and the Americans were using Indian tribes to prove that they had killed another enemy was scalping and sending back a scalp to prove that you had um, you had killed your enemy, that they have a very similar um, origins. I, I think Adam Hochschild, it would be really interesting to talk to him because all of his books are about periods of history um, filled with... Um, filled with sadness is perhaps too um, too too light a word um, but his new book I mean he did one about the middle passage and the um, end of of Britain's slave trade far earlier than uh, America uh, um, you know ending the practice of slavery Britain was was way ahead of America but his new book is about the Spanish Civil War which um, no war is is uh, is happy, but the Spanish Civil War, which presaged World War II and um, involved Americans being part of an international brigade to fight Franco, um, is for me one of the saddest one of the saddest is, wars. Is that to end all wars a story of loyalty and rebellion? No. Oh, um, that's World War One. That's World War One. That's another wonderful book too. He's a really, really good writer, Adam Hochschild. This this new this book about the the Lincoln Brigade and that yes. just came out. Yes, called Spain in Our Hearts, I think. Well, I, you know, when we talk about books having personal meanings for us, I, I think the reason that book meant so much to me <clears throat> is because my father was one of those volunteers who went to fight Franco. So he was one of the Abraham one of the members of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, and he survived. Um, but um, I, I think that that experience um, colored the rest of his life. We are going to be pretty cheery by the end of this podcast. Yeah. That's good. Anybody else? I'm Sandra. I have two, and they're both books about school shootings. Um, one of them is To the Power of Three by Laura Lippman. The other is um, We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver. Um, Laura Lippman's book, To the Power of Three, um, is told from the point of view of the entire community, parents, police officers, the students, um, and each person gets their time to, to respond or to, to have the story focus on them. And literally everyone in the story, um, you see how, how their good intentions absolutely paved the road to hell. 
and um, in We Need to Talk About Kevin, it's told from the point of view, it's a series of letters from Kevin's mother, who was the, the criminal, and uh, told from the time of his birth to the time of the crime and then afterward, and uh, it's what's it like to be the mother of a psychopath, and is he a psychopath, and it's, uh, did, she, did she cause it? Was he born like that? And, and it's just, uh, they're both really uh, books for when you're feeling in a good mood <laughs> and want to come down. <laughs> yeah, um, we need to talk about Kevin. Uh, that Lionel Shriver book is, is so, it's so emotionally um, moving. And, and, and I think partly the fact that she focuses on the mother who who had all who had several opportunities to recognize that things weren't right with her son Kevin and for whatever reason refused to do so it it it's a it's like a punch in i mean i i i highly recommend that book but only during the summer do not read it um when it's dark out i'm susie uh the book i brought is my promised land it has depressing parts, but somehow it has hope, which I think is also part of the subtitle, The Triumph and Tragedy of Israel. The author is Ari Shavit, and he is a descendant of Zionist intellectuals. It's a series of wonderful stories. It won the 2013 New York Times bestseller list and 100 note on the 100 notable books list. I have to say, I totally uh, concur with Susie's um, recommendation of that book. And uh, I, I think looking at Israel's founding, and which he does, and he talks and about, and his family, and the early relationships with the palace, the people who were living in the area, and how that has, how that has inexorably, I think we might say, in some ways, moved to where we are today. It's an excellent, excellent book. Hi, this is Robin. I think uh, most history tends to have a depressing side, and this has a lot of resonance now, I think, for our election. It's called Imbeciles, the Supreme Court, American Eugenics, and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck by Adam Cohen, and it's about one of the uh, most atrocious Supreme Court cases in our history. In 1927, the Supreme Court upheld a Virginia statute authorizing the sterilization of Carrie Buck and thousands of others, it turned out. Uh, and uh, this author goes into the background of Carrie Buck, who was found feeble-minded so that she was eligible for forced sterilization. She wasn't feeble-minded, it turns out. She was of average intelligence, but just the story of American eugenics is part of this book, and there was a guy named Harry Laughlin who is one of the proponents, and he wrote and testified. He was a Nazi sympathizer later, but his work inspired Hitler and Hitler's ideas in Mein Kampf about the, the master race. So the Americans were ahead of the curve, ahead of the curve on eugenics and uh, exterminating the unfit in America, not by sending them to death camps, but by assuring their line would not be carried on. And uh, 
this story still has resonance now, I think, because this case has never been overturned, for one thing. And you have some candidates for president, like a narcissistic billionaire who's talking, uh, who's stirring these feelings, these racist feelings, and calling people losers. And, and uh, I think uh, this is an important book now for people who haven't read it. And another thing that Adam Cohen does is kind of demystify a lot of our great leaders. The academics are the, and people in medicine and industry uh, are the ones who embraced eugenics. They felt they were superior. And uh, a justice who I always thought was, uh, you know, one of the greatest justices, uh, and I didn't know a lot about him, was Oliver Wendell Holmes, but he was a eugenics uh, uh, kind of proponent and felt that he was uh, superior. And most of his decisions, when you look at him, he wasn't a defender of individual rights as such. That came up in some of his cases, but he was usually defending the rich and powerful, as the Supreme Court does, against the vulnerable and powerless. Another definition of American exceptionalism there. Yes. Exceptionalism. Right. We were ahead of the curve, huh? Ahead of the curve. My name is Leslie, and the, the, there were two, actually two books that I, I thought of immediately. Matt Taibbi, I believe it is, The Divide. Well, it's about the uh, difference in, in, in this country at the moment of the haves and have-nots, and it, it is so infuriating. I can only go through a little bit at a time because it brings up all kinds of different ways that injustice is heaped upon people of lesser, uh, lesser means and how the people who do have means are almost immune to the various punishments and, and uh, fees and fines and uh, restrictions of society. And uh, it, it, if you want to get really angry and possibly politicized. It's a good book to read. <laughs> and then another one that's that was that's fiction that I kind of went back over and over and over was Lily King's Euphoria, yeah. and that and that reminded me of two others: The Mosquito Coast uh, by Paul Thru and also The Poisonwood Bible. And it seems like they're all about what happens when. Uh, Smart academic people insert themselves into uh, primitive or tribal cultures that they don't really understand. And, and their uh, scholarship and their understanding of these, uh, of these groups generally gets warped by their own interactions with them. And almost always tragic things happen and foolish tragic things and 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 uh, so uh, it's better to have the sunshine when you're reading these things so you're, you're describing those less you reminded me of another book one that I think if you haven't read that you will enjoy which is also about an anthropologist um, who's working in the hill tribes of uh, among the hill tribes of Thailand and it's called field work uh, by um, uh, an, this is a novel, uh, fieldwork by Misha Berlinski, and B E R L I N S K I, and it's it's not told from her perspective, but again, uh, this is told from from an American. A journalist who happens to be in Thailand uh, with his wife who's working there who's observing this anthropologist and um, I, I, 
I mean, I, th that's not one of the books that would fit in this category, um, totally fit in this category of being so depressing. You only want to read it during the summer months or light months. But it, it's a book that, that about that, um, that insertion of yourself into um, a society that is not yours and how you change it and how it change how it how you affect it and it affects you um, more years ago than I care to remember I, I took a course in anthropology and one of the essays we read was a thing I think it was called the stone axe it was uh, about a group of cultures I think in Africa and um, helpful um, anthropologist introduced uh, steel knives to one of the cultures, uh, which resulted in wars, which resulted in uh, previously uh, one culture made stone implements and they had these trading ceremonies with other groups and all was peaceful. Now that they had steel, the whole society broke down, there were wars, there were slaughters. Um, but uh, of the books that I have read that have made me sad, I know I've mentioned this book before, um, a, a book uh, called The Last of the Just by Andrew Schwarzbart. And if you can read that without uh, breaking down, you're a better person than I am. Um, just about half of the books by Elie Wiesel, uh, in particular, Night, <laughs> and most of, much of his stuff about memory and, and the Holocaust really um, can make you extremely sad. That that that's raises an interesting uh, question. Can can is it possible f for one to read um, an early book by an author where you know what has happened to that author? Um, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm thinking like about who? like Primo Levi, um, who wrote so much about his experiences um, in the Holocaust and. And other things, but but that was the central event of his of his life, as I think it would be anybody's life who lived in. But all the all the work that he did and all the writing that he did, and then to know that he committed suicide, um, I, I I just wonder how, how somebody now knowing that re reads those early books differently than those of us who might have read them when they came out. Wrote um, blue raft, yellow raft on blue water. Yeah, Michael Doris. Michael Doris, who yes. killed yes. himself. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to read it anymore. Yeah. You read these books. What's your responsibility? When I finished reading King Leopold's Ghost, I felt my responsibility was to tell thinking people that I care about, readers, to read it because I didn't know anything about it. We all know about the Holocaust. We know about other tragedies but I didn't know that one. And it seems it should be known. I happened to finish that book just prior to 9-11. And I would say the one thing that was the benefit of having uh, done that is to think about, you know, a place in the world where people had had injustices done to them um, by what, whatever external and to use that as a as, as a way of trying to not necessarily get back in, to get into that bomb them to hell mindset 
um, to be able to think of to be able to think of how is what how is what something was done to another group of people could turn them into um, in, in, in several different ways. And so having, even though they were unrelated parts of the world, having finished that book at that time, it gave me a, a moment of pause, you know, two weeks later when <laughs> that happened. Well, if nothing else, it's Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton now have a reading list for the summer. I suspect that Hillary Clinton has read um, several, she's, a, she's an avid reader and um, a very thoughtful person. I say this without any, um, should not be taken as a, um, <laughs> an endorsement. We don't tweet that out right now. Yeah. Nancy Pearl endorses right, Hillary right, Clinton. Right, like people would care. <laughs> right. I think that it's like with book groups. If you're going to talk about a book or think about a book, there needs to be some there there, something to challenge you, something to, to really think about and, you know, sort of con conjure with. With literary fiction, I put that in air quotes, they are mostly depressing. Um, you know, you look at the award winners of the last of the last two decades at least, there's not one happy book among them. Many books to add to your stack for a summer of really <laughs> intense reading. That's what that stack of books is all about, right? Find us at that stack. Find us on Facebook, that stack of books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Scher. Find us at thatstackofbooks.com. Sign up for our newsletter and happy reading. Thank you all.